Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a comedian, the host of the new podcast, The Implications of Josh Denny, and the host of the Food Network series, Ginormous Foods. I am speaking, of course, of Josh Denny. Hello, buddy. How's it going? Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Thanks for braving the rain. It's brutal out there. Yeah. This is what uh, passes for winter. It's not too bad. I mean, I lived in Minneapolis for 11 years, so I um, I didn't – this is nothing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. It's funny. I dropped my child off at school this morning, and we carpool, and to see how Southern California children react to rain like the Wicked Witch of the West. Like, as he's getting out of the car, he's got to get the umbrella open because, heaven forbid, a drop – fall on his unsullied head oh yeah you know before he steps on the pavement what is your what is your story i i i know you're from philadelphia you're wearing a a phillies hat but you've also mentioned like three other places you've lived in the last two minutes yeah i've lived um i grew up in philadelphia i lived there till i was about 15 16 and then moved to minnesota so your family moved there Uh, no just my uh, my mom had lived there and she was married and um i you know i visited there for a while um, you know, through like middle school years and stuff like that. And then because I was trying to play hockey, um, ice hockey, I wanted to move to Minnesota and try to play in high school out there and potentially get some opportunities at division one schools and, um, do that. And then when I moved out there, I kind of, I moved out there in the off season and then got into music and, and started playing in bands. And so everything kind of took a turn there. And, and then I lived, uh, I lived in Minnesota for about 11 years and got into comedy um, in 2007 and then moved to Los Angeles in 2009. So do you, people will know you from ginormous foods. Do you think of yourself as a comedy guy who fell into the food thing or are you more of an actual straight up food guy? Cause I, you would be the only person on the, <laughs> on the food network. Who's not like all food all the time. Yeah, no, I'm a comedy guy who totally fell into the food world. So it's funny when you say, you know, are you a food guy who who also does comedy? I mean, well, I'm a fat guy, so as much as a food guy, I mean, I don't know what I, makes I've you had a food a, guy. I've a passion but... for it on an amateur level. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, since I was a child. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to think it was the gig I prepared my whole life for, but uh, but no, um, it was a weird situation how it happened. I was very lucky, and uh, I had started doing sort of a food-centric comedy interview show um, a podcast um, about a year before uh, this production company that made ginormous food reached out to me. They had heard the podcast. They found me online and they were specifically looking for a comedian to do like a, um, a travelogue show, you know, sort of centered around visiting food places. And they sort of built uh, the idea of ginormous food around several conversations that we had about sort of um, like my personality, what interests me in food and things like that. So it was something that they developed with the network and kind of custom built around me. And um, and then it just kind of took off from there. It was one of those things where, you know, when a production company from Nashville reaches out to you via email and is like, we're thinking about you for the host of a TV show, your first reaction is like, 
who is this? Who's messing with me? Right. What what Nigerian prince put this email together? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so I was very skeptical at first, and it was like a lot of conversations. And then we started developing the show um, for Travel Channel. And then one of the executives at Food Network looked at it and was like, no, this is a Food Network show. We love this. Um, and then they moved us over there and we ran for three seasons and did very good numbers. And now we've, you know, we've aired in 14 different countries. Yeah. You're syndicated. That's crazy. Globally. Have you ever had the experience of going to a weird country and seeing yourself on television? No, but I've had friends go to other countries and send me video clips of me on television. I shared one on Instagram yesterday of a commercial for our show in Italy and it's just you know it's all dubbed over and it's it's hilarious. It's it's one of the weirdest things. Are you, in the are world. you like like oh mama mia? Yeah, that's yeah. a big meatball. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 crazy. And they they you know the voices that they use are always way more masculine and bassy than mine. Right. Yeah. So there, it's just very, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Is genuine, uh, Mister Fool. You know, just, but uh, but that, those words are always like uh, normal, and then you know everything else in Italian is by some super. Yeah, he's bassy like that. He sounds like he sounds like he narrates porn. That's how bassy his voice is. I don't think there's a whole there's a huge media complex in Italy. I'm sure that guy's multitasking. Oh yeah, I'm sure he's doing. I'm pretty sure it's the same guy who did it for Spanish television as well. Sound, it's the same bassy voice. Yeah, he calls I, soccer games, and mm-hmm. you know, he does all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he makes orgasm noises. He yells goal. He can talk about big sandwiches. Yeah, he's very versatile. So is that series? <laughs> is that not running anymore? Is that no? Finished? We're we're done making new episodes at least for the time being. Um, but it's it's cool. You know, I've some people. Um, as always, you're going to have people that sort of like root against it you know there's a lot of health nuts that were like oh finally that shows off the air it's it's the worst part of america and things like that you know celebrating gluttony but uh, but i'm very proud of it i mean we did three seasons we did 24 episodes and you know i i had a conversation recently with uh, bert kreischer and mm-hmm. um he likes food we just bumped into each other at an airport and um, he's like, man, you know, that's your first thing that you ever did. Like, it's the first show I ever piloted. It went to series. It ran three seasons, been syndicated globally. And he's like, I ran like 30 pilots before I ever had anything picked up. Uh, so he goes, I hope you realize how rare that is and how lucky you are. And, and I do. You know, it's it's a very it's a very unique situation to have be to have been kind of just dropped into and to have that kind of success right out of the gate. So my only hope now is that the next thing, we just build on that and and can do something even bigger and better on the next show. I would not join the naysayers who have a problem with celebrating gluttony. Clearly that's what the point of the Food Network is to a large extent, is food in... It's like the... um, I don't know. It's like the alcohol ads are always just like, you know, drink uh, Jose Cuervo responsibly with friends. And it's like, yeah, you, you kind of have to say that. We yeah. all we all know what's really well, going on. Well, they're legally here. required. But yeah. but the funny thing is a lot of people looked at it, It's so interesting. We live in a world where everybody wants to be politically correct. But there's a lot of assumption that happens about our show when people just see me and they see the title of the show. Mm-hmm. They see a fat guy hosting a show called Ginormous Food and they go, oh, he's just eating everything. You know, it's like one of those competition shows. It's like a, it's like man versus food, but ten times that. But a lot of our dishes on the show were things that are, you know, made for parties and catering events, and and um, you know, it's not something that any one person could eat. And the, and the concept of the show was that we would we would make these things. We would get a little bit into the weeds of how you even build something that big. But then we would feed the entire restaurant with it. So if anything, you know, I think the show. Uh, 
if you watch it, and a lot of people took this message away from it, was that how we eat dinner in groups is something that we could drastically take a look at and change. You know, you go out to these places and everybody gets 10 different things. Everybody gets their own unique meal. Um, and I think it's interesting if you start looking at are there ways that people can order something that's a little bit bigger and share food and end up, you know, wasting less food, you know, having less of a a carbon footprint from firing 30 different dishes in a kitchen at one time. So... Um, communal eating. And not only that, but one of the things I wanted to get into more in the show, if we were able to continue, is to get a little bit more focused on, you know, people coming together around food and like turning our phones off and actually experiencing things and, and going back to those days where you would all get around a table, share a big meal and tell stories and have fun. And, you know, people weren't checking their Instagram feed every five seconds or taking pictures of every dish as it comes out. Um, I really wanted to kind of steer the show in that direction. Unfortunately, we just weren't able to do that. But yeah, you're picturing a, the world as a giant buco de beppo. <laughs> yeah, buca de beppo. It doesn't yeah. make a difference. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say that because when the show premiered, that's the restaurant I went to to sort of celebrate. Yeah, and I just I just thought it was appropriate. It makes sense. Uh oh, no. Is the food okay there? Because I'm saying I love it. There's I a place in New fine. York that's like the original, the thing that they ripped off. Yeah, is it Carmine's? Doesn't matter. Maybe. And and the food is actually not only gigantic but good because very often, as we know, you know, uh, quantity becomes a replacement for quality. For quality. So you like change shit? Because I, I I'm at that point. I'm a humongous food snob. I guess I don't think there's a single sit down like a white tablecloth uh, chain restaurant that I could take seriously. Yeah, I I guess I I don't really discriminate. I mean, to me, it's just about consistency and good places. I will tell you, I probably bitch and complain about restaurants more than anybody else because, you know, going through visiting each episode, we visited three restaurants. We did 24 episodes. So do the math. I mean, um, we visited tons of restaurants, met tons of chefs and owners and a lot of people that just do such a great job. And so when I go to these like a chain restaurant and they just they fail to hit the mark in every way service pricing the quality of the food i'm not quiet about it um so i I think i'm snobbish similarly to you in that way where i have high expectations but um but but i'm also not one of those people where i just won't set foot in a chain restaurant i'm just very picky about the chains that i go to and buka is one that i think is pretty consistent i'll have to i'll have to give that a second look they got the one down at the grove now the problem is I'm never rolling with a party of 12. Yeah, it's not a place you can just go and have lunch by yourself. It doesn't make any... You need any... at least one friend. Yeah, 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 and I, I, that's about as many as I have. Tully, I can be that friend. <laughs> Let's go to Buca de Beppo. Uh, I met somebody one time who told me they worked at uh, Red Lobster and that every single thing that comes out of the kitchen uh, was um, microwaved. Ugh. Which is the most, out of all the chain restaurants... Like I've heard that every single thing in Taco Bell is essentially powder that they add hot water to mm-hmm. it's like hot cocoa yeah blown up to an entire mexican restaurant right. chain and that doesn't surprise me that doesn't frankly bother me sure. if i like taco bell that's not going to make me not like taco bell but right. and it's one component of whatever you're eating right it's the meat or or i was under the impression that it was also like the onions oh okay. maybe <laughs> i don't i don't know it's amazing Food science went from being a miracle to being a dystopian nightmare. Yeah. Is really the problem. And it happened in probably the course of a couple of years. So you why did the food have to be so big? Just the concept of the show. Okay. <laughs> That's it. I mean, just for just for entertainment purposes and uh-huh. to make it fun and 
And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in that. The primary reason that they made that the, the format of the show was because of the success of like the virality of videos that they did on um, on their digital platforms like Facebook and YouTube and everything else of showcasing dishes like that from other shows like Triple D or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think they just said, like, what if we make this, you know, an entire show? Hey, honey, get a load of this cheeseburger yeah it's you know it's how do they make it how do they make a six-foot pizza what um what city most surprised you with the quality of its food louisville is there more than one of those that's kentucky yeah okay yeah louisville was uh i'll say it the correct way louisville um but louisville had the best food of anywhere we went and not just the places that we not just the places we filmed at even the meals we had you know on our own were pretty mind-blowing you know, one of the best pieces of pizza I ever had in the entire run of the show was in Louisville. This is becoming um, a thing with me. I, New York really needs to get over itself where pizza is concerned because New York got real lazy. And I'm not talking about... I the, haven't had great pizza in New York since I was a child. I'm not talking about the top 10 places that get on the Food Network. I'm talking about when I was a kid, you could walk into any, any place, any single pizzeria that did not have Ray's in the name and get a really outstanding slice of pizza. It mm-hmm. was shocking if you didn't, and now the exact opposite is true. It's yeah. shocking if you go to a neighborhood in New York and the local whatever... Vito's is actually has a quality slice of pizza. Meanwhile, I uh, and it's funny because I brought my kid back home and and my family is going. Oh, and I'm in New Jersey and oh, enjoy this. Eat as much as you can. You're not going to get this where you're from. And I'm yeah, like, oh, actually, it's not that great. Actually, we got really pretty quality pizza in Los Angeles. There's a couple good places out here. One There's of the tons. things. One of the things that I've really gotten into lately is um, like coal oven pizza. Have uh-huh. you ever had it? There's a guy, I think, oh, I'm talking about wood. Yeah. Do you distinguish between the Yeah, there is a huge difference between coal. I'll tell you. This is where I get off. I had a coal, I had a coal uh, fired pizza in in New Jersey when I went out there. It's like this small chain that they have out there called, I think it's called Anthony's Coal Fired Pizza. Sounds about right. Oh my God. So I went to this place and it was snowing and it was cold outside. So maybe that ambience had something to do with it as well, but- I mean, the pizza we ate was so amazing. I was like, listen, I don't care if we burn a hole through the ozone layer and we scorch <laughs> the earth. Bring back coal if it's only for the pizza. Yeah, I say as long as we're – it's it's almost impossible with – we've all been spoiled by the world of convenience in which we live. Just pick your spots where you're trashing the earth. Right. Don't trash the earth when you're not getting – extracting joy from it at the same time uh, yeah, I think as extracting a, fossil fuels. That's a good policy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, we don't need to do it frivolously, but if it makes the best pizza, then I think we should consider it. Yeah, like, I'm not a, a racing fan, but I am not. I don't think they should shut down NASCAR. I just think that people should take El Caminos off the road if they're not driving uh, dead bodies or flowers around in the back. Yeah, that's probably a fair, that's probably a fair request. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I just, ugh, oh, the... The, the 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 char on the crust on the outside. I mean, it was a heavenly experience. What city has the shittiest food in America? Oh, man. You know, you know what? This is going to be a very unpopular thing, but I wouldn't say shittiest, but the city that has the most overrated food in America is this one. Los, Los Angeles? Angeles? Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. The most overrated food in America. And, and I just base that off of the places... They pop up all the time where it's like, oh, this chef has a new pop up mm-hmm. and it's the it's going to be one of the hottest restaurants. And they just get too crazy with the menu. It's like there are certain I do a joke in my act about fusion food, but there are certain cuisines that just have no business ever meeting each other on a plate. 
And I feel like in L.A., everything is a mashup, and um, it's just it just gets so whimsical and so predictable that it's not interesting anymore and it just doesn't yeah. make for it's too much it's like when a real like when a, a really rich guy who's ugly marries a trophy wife they always have a couple of kids and one of them is like stunning because they're like beautiful but in a really interesting Usually the first way. one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's always the the misfit toy right. that comes out and that's sort of Los Angeles food. Yeah, you're talking about Ivanka versus the two brothers. I suppose I, <laughs> it's I a didn't great realize, example. I didn't right? realize that that You've was You've got exactly... this woman who's beautiful and mm-hmm. intelligent and you know, I remember seeing her on the on the apprentice when I was like a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. That's how old that show was and I was like, "Oh my god, I would marry her. She's gorgeous." Yeah, unfortunately, I think her dad felt the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see his point, but the and then the other two just come out and they're just like lizard people. Yeah, a couple of milk duds. Just a couple of creeps. L.A. is a tale of, and I know nobody listening to this gives a half a fuck about L.A. talking about L.A. or specifically food in Los Angeles, but I don't care. Uh, it's a tale of two cities. L.A. has some of the best ethnic food. Agreed. So you can get, I've never learned how to make a burrito because there's absolutely no reason why I would master the 40 different tasks Absolutely. that go into making a decent burrito yeah. when there's an, a limitless supply of places that will give me an amazing one for $9, some of which don't have restaurant licenses, some of which are are pop-up tents on the sidewalk yeah. in sketchy neighborhoods. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the the falafel scene is solid here. There's all, anything, obviously, Korean food, Vietnamese. Pure ethnic food here is phenomenal. It's amazing. That's it's, the food that's great. It's anything, when white people ruin it that in, it gets bad. Anything that will ever be on the cover of Los Angeles Magazine costs twice as much as uh, it should and will get its ass kicked by a comparable place in New York. Yeah. That is my I think there are guys like opinion. I think there are guys like Ray Garcia and Roy Choi who I think do a really good job of being sort of respectful of the culture and cuisine and they've found a way to elevate ethnic food a little bit that um, that has been very successful and I've enjoyed their restaurants I've enjoyed mm-hmm. the places that they've had even their pop-ups or whatever but there's a lot of places that I just think are so far overrated and they're trendy and you know I, I'm not going to do bits but uh, but uh, pretty much the whole new the first 20 minutes of my hour now is sort of revolving around kind of transitioning the people that know me from that world into my comedy um, but there's a lot of talking about just what what has gone horribly wrong with um, the trendiness of restaurant tour, like restaurant owning and being a chef and everything else. And they're like DJs now, you know, they're, right. they're very much trying to look the part and act the part mm-hmm. and present the part. And, yeah. and they're not really putting the the work into the product or the art that that causes, you know, food to be great. They all got sleeves. Yeah, <laughs> they all got sleeves. So when you're, I, I mean, mean, and and Marcel Vigneron, who was a guy who for many many years was like the molecular gastronomy dude, he's had a lot of success with his restaurant in on Melrose called Wolf, and it's just all simple cooking. You know, it's got some Asian influence, some Mediterranean influence, but it's all very simple dishes, and it's amazing. It's one of my favorite restaurants in L.A. Yeah, I almost always prefer it when the guy does his, um, what do they call him, uh, not diffusion. Basically his, you want a piece of this, but you can't afford it. Mm-hmm. So it's like the Gucci socks yeah. of food. Yeah, yeah, I almost always prefer when the guys are like, I made a sandwich yeah. with duck and cheese. Yeah. It's really fucking awesome. That's what I love. Because that's I, what he actually eats. Yes, and that's and that's what I dig. They're just like, yeah, I want to take these great ingredients, but like- I don't want to make five hundred dollar plates, man. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's what's I think that is actually the future of fast casual and the future of food. Have you noticed how many like fast casual chains are using lobster 
in their ingredients now. Like I saw a billboard for Yoshinoya the other day. It was like, we have yeah. lobster bowls They got now. lobster stew. And I, yeah, lobster stew, That's and it's it, like yeah. over rice. And I'm just like, w- w- the idea of getting lobster at a fast casual place 10 years ago would have been insane. I'm um, not but, sure Yoshinoya qualifies as fast casual. Really? You think it's just straight up fast food? I've never been inside a Yoshinoya. Oh, well then I don't think you're an authority. Aren't they the bowl people? <laughs> yeah, they make but they do bowls. What's the price point? Uh I think it's like eight to ten dollars. Oh, okay, that's fast casual. Yeah, it's not fast food. But um but you know, Rubio's has done it for a long time. And yeah. I actually think they're one of the better fast casual in terms of using elevated ingredients, but they just make tacos and burritos and they're great. McDonald's had a lobster roll for a minute. Yeah. And I learned in uh researching for you coming by that at one point in the 80s Taco Bell had a seafood salad. Really? Yeah. It was their answer to the generic fried fish sandwich that they have at every fast food yeah, place. Yeah, the, the filet fish You don't want to know what that is. You can't tell what that is. Is that even fish? Let's get real here. Come to Taco Bell and eat our- Not just Taco Bell, but 80s Taco Bell when nobody was really checking in on these people. Yeah. Yeah, there was really no, like, is that, if, if this was the regulation, is that real food? And they go, oh, yeah, it's real food. And they go, all right, we're just checking. Yeah, this is pre-Chalupa yeah. Taco Bell. So I'm guessing your audience grew substantially when you got a TV show, and is that that's interesting. People are going to show up. You don't identify primarily as a, a food guy, or like a food entertainer, a food-based entertainer a la Guy Fieri or what have you, but now people are coming to see the food guy Yeah, when you've been the comedy guy for a while before that. Yeah, and it's it's the challenge is connecting the two audiences, right? Yeah. Because there, there are a lot of, there are people that were fans of my comedy that didn't care for the food show at all. Mm-hmm. They're just like, ah, we know that's kind of like a, a PG version of you and that's not really who you are. And then there are a lot of people who love the food show and then get into the comedy world and like, oh, this is like a completely different side of you. Um, and so I really just have tried to, you know, write a little bit of material that kind of bridges the gap and is welcoming of the newer people. Um, but still, it's not changing who I am. It's really just an introduction. Uh, did you ever go to Albuquerque? Yeah, I've been through there a few times. Not to perform. I didn't I haven't done comedy there, but I've been through there a few times. Horrible food city. Yeah? Weird, weird. I don't want to be disrespectful to people in Albuquerque. Weird town. Well, I've never been a Tex-Mex guy, and mm-hmm. that's like so much of Albuquerque and West Texas is all Tex-Mex, and that's just not, it's it's very flavorless to me. Yeah. It's like if you want- It's kind of like the Tex one. It's bland Mexican food, <laughs> which is like the opposite of why you eat Mexican food. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, but I agree with you. There's uh, Everyone wants to talk about like broken Spanish in downtown LA. They're like, that's the best Mexican place, but I want a greasy spoon Mexican place. Like my favorite Mexican food place in all of Southern California is a joint called Fiesta Grill, and it is, uh, it's like two blocks off of PCH in Huntington Beach on 17th. And it's next to a liquor store and a laundromat. I was going to say, is it in a strip mall? You just walk in this strip mall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's kind of place. like one of the first times I went there when I moved here in 2009. Just Tank Abbott just sitting outside eating. You know, old Tank Abbott, not the one we grew up with. But, uh, but you know, and like a lot of skateboarders. Like I, I saw Christian Hosoy there one day. But it's one of these local spots that people, like the people that live in Huntington know about it, but it's not a place that is like ever written about. I think they're a three-star on Yelp. But I tell people this is the best Mexican food I've had in the, in the country. 
like in the United States. It's just the best. Holy shit. Have you had a burrito at Terry's on uh, Melrose? I haven't been there. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. I'm not saying it's better. I've never been yeah, to your yeah. place, but that's that's my go-to. Yeah. That's where I send uh, visitors from out of town. Yeah, I, I try to say like it's the best place I've ever been to because it's, I can't go to all the places, man. No, of course not. And yeah. it is sort of circumstantial. So uh, frankly- it's like what people say about wine. Oh, can you really tell the difference between a two hundred dollar or a twenty dollar bottle? It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. People I, with really refined palates, they, also known as alcoholics, could tell you. Well, they can. You can tell. The, the question then becomes: Is it is it one thousand percent better? Because that's you know the the price markup, and, right. and then we can argue about that all day. But you know, the, your favorite song probably has something to do with what was going on in your life when that song came Bingo. out. There's movies that I've seen once and didn't care for and loved another time and vice versa. So it, it doesn't mean that you're reading into the food or you're imagining things. It's just, it's circumstantial. I always thought that would make for a very interesting, that's an aspect that I've tried to incorporate in some new shows that I'm pitching is, you know, what is the sort of psychological connection with people's food? So I'm pitching a show um, right now around town that's sort of about um, what everyone's ultimate cheap food is, but a, a big component of it is what is sort of the social and psychological connection um, to that food. Like for me, it's Mexican food, but that's because that's what my dad and I always went out to eat together when I was a kid. So he would work, he'd be working or he'd be busy. But the one time, like any time we got to go out and spend time together, it was always at the same Mexican restaurant. And so obviously that's a big part. And then the other one is Italian food because I used to make it with my aunt growing up. So mm-hmm. when my parents got divorced, uh, I lived with my I lived in my grandmother's house, but she had Alzheimer's, and so. My father and my two aunts would rotate in sort of supervising the household. And when my one aunt, Tad, uh, would would come over, she was like into cooking and into food. And, and she worked with a bunch of Italian people. And so she was always into Italian food. And that was a big part of my love of that. Yeah, that's your that's your rosebud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's, what's your like, if you know, if you're going to be executed last meal, I'm guessing it's one of those two things. It's hard to say. It changes all the time, man. It really does. Like when they asked me this question a couple of years ago with Food Network, I was like, "My mom's nachos because she just makes these. They're just garbage nachos. It's Doritos. I saw that. You know, like uh, just over seasoned taco meat, Velveeta cheese, just like the ultimate white trash nachos. Um, that's one of the things I would definitely want to have. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to say." Uh, the, it, after hitting all these restaurants and visiting all these places, that I could probably list uh, ten things. I guess. I guess what I would say is, if I had to have a final meal and I'm on death row, I'd want it to be an all-you-can-eat buffet, so I could prolong the inevitable as long as I could. Sure. There's something about Velveeta. If you're not raised with it, because my wife is um, not from America, she's from Japan, and she moved here when she was four, but she moved here with her mom, who's Japanese, and so they ate, still ate a lot of Japanese shit. Sure. And you, you need to get a taste for these things at a certain point in your life. Everybody got I mean, it's not that macaroni and cheese was ever unpopular, but sometime in the last ten years mac and cheese got really fucking hot again. And I keep hearing these places the greatest mac and cheese and I'm like, Yeah, there's just there's something miss it's it's creamy and it's salty, but there's something and I'm, it took me years to be like it's Velveeta. You need Velveeta. I was raised eating macaroni and cheese with yes. Velveeta, and there's a tang in there that somebody out there is gonna have to figure out a way to use expensive cheese to basically can like, I tell you reformulate Velveeta in every in every great barbecue restaurant I've eaten in, they use Velveeta in their mac and cheese. I'm not messing with you. They'll Good. use real cheese too. Yeah, but Velveeta is part of the mix. Oh, you want a you want a more extended flavor profile yes. than just cheese that yeah. lives on a on a shelf. 
Listen, man, I, I love when I can meet a guy who's like not – that's one of my favorite things are these dudes who just aren't chefs and there's no sacred cows for them. And they're just like, yeah, man, I put Velveeta in my mac and cheese because that's how you fucking make mac and cheese. Yes. That's it. Right. There's no alternative to that. And they're like, yeah, I'll put breadcrumbs on it, dress it up a little bit, but you got to have Velveeta or else it's not mac and cheese. And I'm like, I respect you as a restaurateur. Do you – is it inevitable that you do a 180 one day and become a, a skinny vegan? Yeah, it's it's possible. You know, it's interesting. I I um I had a physical done after I finished the show, and I was you ever you ever take it? <laughs> Did the lawyers of the Food Network mandate that? No, no. Actually, they wanted me to take one. originally they wanted me to take one at the beginning of the show, and then somehow I didn't have to do that. I don't know why, but um, I just took it because a lot of people got in my head. They were just like, dude, you know, you put a little bit of weight back on, and they're like, you should probably get looked at. And it was one of those things. Do you ever have a test that you didn't study for in high school, and then you're like, how the hell did I get an A on this? Yeah. So I came back and everything was perfect. Like blood levels, cholesterol, sugar, everything. Like triglycerides are higher than they should be because I'm overweight. But other than that, like everything was perfect. And I was just like, wow, I guess I'm doing a pretty good job of just balancing out with the shit. Yeah. Because I think I do that. And I tell people all the time, you get to an age, like I'm 34 now, but you get to an age where your body tells you like, hey, man, you've had too much red meat in the last three days. Like have a juice, have a salad, eat some fish. And I I think I do a pretty good job of listening to my body that way. Are you an alcoholic? No, I don't drink at all. So that's probably a big, uh, really a big helpful factor. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I never. I really never have. Good for you. I'm increasingly. hmm, I get people like you. We used to make fun of people like you as alcoholics, but it's pretty good. Well, you know, I think everybody has their vice. I mean, I grew up around a bunch of alcoholics and addicts, and and for me it was just like, well, none of these people have ever really amounted to shit, so if I want to lead a good life or productive life, that probably shouldn't be part of it. And then it just got to the point where I was so old uh, by the time that anybody really was trying to get me to drink socially that I was just like, I don't don't need it, you know? And it just it was one of those things where I was like, I I think I've got enough things, like terrible things I like to put in my body because I like to eat you know, garbage. So I was just like, this is an expensive habit that I don't need to pick up. And it was yeah. sort of the same way with smoking. Yeah, good for you. You got to pick your poisons, I guess. So let's talk about your uh, your podcast. Yeah. The Implications of Josh Denny. What the hell does that mean? Well, it's really just, uh, it was, it was, I played around with the ideas of, the, of naming this new podcast because I had done my old one, March of the Pigs, which was really just a food-centric podcast. But the new one uh, kind of was born out of this idea of, I have a very... I I love to sort of throw a grenade into conversation and just see where it goes. And this was uh this was kind of the title I came up with that built that was built around the idea of the show. So the every show now starts out with me making sort of an incendiary statement either about the guest or about a subject and then we just sort of talk about it. So uh-huh. uh, you know, there's nothing I would love more than to bring somebody on and just go, "Well, everybody hates you for this. Let's talk about it." And just get their take on things. But a lot of it has just sort of been current events and things that have happened recently. Um, I've got a few episodes coming out, like uh, an episode coming out with Ty Rivera very soon where we talk about um, the sort of the illusion of inclusivity in Hollywood and this idea of um, diversity. But when it's manufactured, it ends up being more racist than inclusive. And primarily in that episode, we, we talk about... Um, the fact that every gay person on TV is the same caricature of gay people and that uh, there's only a handful of shows, maybe one one showrunner that I think shows the spectrum of what gay people are. But for the most part, everybody's sort of just Billy Eichner, 
you know? Well, right. It's what... this sort of flamboyant, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Will and Grace, more the Sean Hayes variety. If your character is defined by that trait, I just right. interviewed uh, Jimmy O. Yang, and he's well aware that he's very, most of the time, trying out for the role of the Asian guy. Right. Not the guy who does this and that, who sure. is Asian. He's playing the Asian guy. And I also interviewed an author named Karina Chocano, who wrote a book. You think it's bad for gay dudes or Asian guys or whatever. Her book is called You Play the Girl. And it's about, I forget if it was Scarlett Johansson. It's some big actress was saying, when you get into a Hollywood movie, the guy, he's been having trouble at work, and he always thought when he was young that life would work out like this, but he's also divorced, um, but he's also uh, an astronaut. And then you play the girl. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you say that, because that, that very much is in line with kind of my feelings about it, about how, you know, uh, the Hollywood has sort of this idea of what what is diverse enough, and and I'll never forget. Um, I go to a lot of tapings. I was I'm very interested in you know I I didn't go to film school or anything like that, um, but it's pretty clear to me that I I think it, with where I want to go in my career, making my own stuff is going to be a very big part of that. Mm-hmm. And so I've gone to a ton of tapings. I've worked at, you know in production at various levels, done different jobs just to try to get an understanding of how stuff is made. It's smart and. Um, and one of the things I love more than anything else is listening to the way casting people talk about filling roles. Because if you want to talk about how full of shit Hollywood is when they say they want diversity and inclusiveness, just listen to the way casting people talk about casting the part. Like what? Well, they'll make, I've heard the statement, we need someone blacker. And I'm just like, ooh, what do you mean? And of course, my comic brain just turns on and goes, how do you mean blacker? And they're like, you know, you know what we mean. We just blacker, just more edgy and, you know, uh, you know, somebody from the streets like that kind of. And, and you, it, to me, I just love watching the stereotypical racist shit that just pours out in this pursuit of finding the black person that makes them look diverse. And so it's the idea that so much of the manufactured inclusivity is built on racial stereotypes to say like, well, we can't have this mixed girl because she's too whitewashed and we won't get credit for having diversity. She doesn't she can't fill that part. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with her ability as an actress. Right. It has everything to do with the optics. And I think that's a very interesting side of Hollywood that I think mainstream America doesn't think about. Do you know Mike Catherwood? Uh, no, I know a Mike Catherwood, but I don't think it's the one you're talking about. He, yeah, used to host Love Line with Dr. Drew, radio mm-hmm. guy, and I know he he is half Mexican, but like he's he's Mexican, but if they're casting, but not enough. If they're casting a Mexican guy. He'll he's never not, get he's it. Not nearly Mexican, right? Enough. That's he's my sort point. of in no man's land. Well, and to me, like some of the most, I think some of the most amazing actors and actresses are some of those folks that fall in the middle. You know, yeah. Um, I, I love Natalie Emanuel. I don't know who that is. She plays um she plays Miss Sandy on Game of Thrones. She's like the the There was a Miss Sandy? Miss Sa- yeah, it's it's spelled like M I S S. Oh, oh, she's like the interpreter. Yes. Lady? Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. I gotcha. But it's interesting like she pl- so she plays a lot of these intellectual roles. Mm-hmm. So like in in the Fast and the Furious movies, she's the hacker. You know what I mean? And so there's like this clearly defined idea yeah. of who a person with that skin tone and that look should be. Like, she's the smart black. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so Zoe, Zoe Saldana is the blue one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's so funny how 
there are these micro and I and one of the things I loved was um was it the documentary um oh god it's, was it called Dark Skin where they talked about just the levels of of um, social perception of darkness in the black community and how you no, know I've heard of this yeah yeah I, and I can't remember I know Rock did the one Good Hair and it's kind of the same thing yeah Chris Rock did I, I watched that yeah right. how how sort of like the the natural look is considered trashy and poor and to have straight beautiful hair that's mostly extensions is considered prettier and how the whole thing was born of his daughters mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to put words in whatever their mouth but like saying you know daddy do I have good hair or I want to have good hair I want to be pretty right yeah. exactly and that that internalizing that this is that however he had raised them and I'm sure he didn't put that on them they still somehow growing up in American society arrived at that conclusion all by themselves yeah so my biggest fear is um, is that in this pursuit of Hollywood becoming more diverse and, and being more inclusive in the stories they tell that there's going to be a lot more hardcore racism displayed in this process of manufacturing the look of an inclusive Hollywood that's actually worse for the industry Has that and worse for the people in it because I would argue that tokenism is a stepping stone to in- true inclusivity. Well, I think inclusivity is where the race of the person doesn't affect the role at all. I think it's saying that, you know, I, you can make a rap mu- uh, a rap movie that doesn't have to be all one race of people. Or you can make a movie about um, inner city gangs or something and, and it could be all white guys. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's understanding that that race doesn't have to dictate the character played or Mm -hmm. or sexuality. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's very interesting that there hasn't been a single show that I can think of um, that has ever shown a gay masculine football player. And I have a theory about this. I think one of the reason why masculine gay men aren't, aren't getting a lot of airtime on television is because it's terrifying to advertisers for middle America, because I think I think middle America and conservative people are okay with gay people as long as they're identifiable enough to keep away from your social circle. But I think when it's just a normal dude who lives next door to you and happens to fuck guys, Mm -hmm. it's a little scarier. See, it's there's like these concentric circles of the most mainstream entertainment is always going to be the most behind the times, the most mm-hmm. reactionary. But I'm thinking, for example, of a TV show that I like, Shit's Creek. Have you yeah. watched? Right. I saw, I think I saw most of the first season. Okay. So, spoiler alert, the the kid, um, Eugene Levy's son, Dan Levy, is, I guess, bisexual, but leans more gay. And mm-hmm. he gets this boyfriend, and the boyfriend really is like... He's a dude, but it's not a joke because he's like this totally straight dude who just fucks dudes. He's identifiably a gay man, but he's also identifiably like a functional, normal, well-adjusted, you know, gay man. Well, Alan Ball, I think, does a tremendous job of this. Like that? He he did uh, True Blood. He did um, uh, the first big hit show he had was Six Feet Under, Mm -hmm. and he's got this new show called Here and Now. But I think Alan Ball, more than any other showrunner, director, writer, whatever, uh, does a great job of of beating the stereotypes around gay people. I mean, essentially, in Six Feet Under, um, which was the show that broke Michael C. Hall's career, he plays um, a gay funeral home director, but there's absolutely nothing flamboyant or stereotypically, uh, stereotypically gay about his character whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And Alan Ball's done a great job of 
creating interesting gay characters without using and i think those are crutches i think they're crutches as writers where they go well you know what the gay guy could do that could be really funny oh yeah is what he does in every other show and so i think it's a much more interesting much more challenging way to write diversity into roles without um sort of insulting the viewer by saying like we need you to know he's gay so we're gonna have him come out in you know rain boots and a fedora and you know, he's going to have six dicks hanging off of his neck. Like, you know, it's these just, are signifiers. Yeah. It's sort of like it's and it to me, that's that's the real way to make progress is to say that th- I think it should be reflective of the world we live in now where, you know, you can't really judge a book by its cover and people beat stereotypes every day. And I think content that reflects that is much more interesting. I'm thinking of hip hop and its infiltration of American culture. The first shit that got on the radio well run dmc is cool but i don't i don't know how legitimate the fat boys are considered in you know among <laughs> hardcore hip-hop heads rodney dangerfield had a successful rap single i don't know yeah. if you recall that rapping rodney Ugh. the i think the first ever grammy for that had hip-hop in the name went to millie vanilli because um girl you know it's true their breakthrough single had rapping in it. And then fast forward less than a decade later and Dr. Dre has gone from being what NWA were to being pretty, I I don't think anybody was telling him to water it down. I think he was doing exactly what he thought was cool and kids responded to it in a major, major way. So aren't we pretty much just already on that path with just about everything? And what's more, you were talking about uh, people making their own content, and I've seen stuff on your website about don't just think that you're special and wait for agents to come to you. Create a star around yourself, and then you you bargain from a position of power. Is yes. the implication of that as entertainment in a certain way, but in a major certain way, becomes more democratic? I.e., people can blow themselves up through YouTube and social media. Isn't it sort of inevitable that lazy, out of touch? just trying to hang on TV executives will give a little bit and a little bit at a time and eventually they'll what they think people want will actually be what people want. So you're saying that they'll almost it's like the concept of being lapped in racing. Like even if you're a lap behind you're still right next to the guy who's in first place. I don't I don't know I'm not sure I totally get that analogy. I just think it's going to get there but it's net we're getting there. We're already there on the fringes of entertainment, and it's not like uh, horrible comparisons. It's not like gay cabaret or something. Like there's mainstream entertainment. Like I said, Shit's Creek. You're talking about the True Bloods and stuff like that. Yeah, the show Here and Now is a great example. Like there's uh, yeah. one of the main characters in the show is gay, but it's part of his life. But it doesn't define the characters. Like right. their their lives aren't about being gay men. It's yeah. just it just happens to be part of their life. I think that's a better. I think that will bridge the gap between. Uh, people who are uncomfortable around gay people mm-hmm. and gay people a lot faster than keeping these caricatures alive in, in media. See, I would I would also say that it's probably unrealistic to expect Hollywood as we know it to ever really portray three-dimensional gay people or black people because Hollywood, for the most part, also doesn't portray three-dimensional anybody. Sure. Yeah, I mean they're throwing up cultural stereotypes and caricatures left and right for everybody. Yeah, I mean the you know Bill Burr did a bit on it many years ago, but the you know he was when he said how many white people or evil movies are they going to make, where every time and and I, my interest in life is to go around the people that sort of break the mold. Like it's so interesting to me 
um, how so many of the slavery movies have been made from the perspective of, you know, white people are evil and this was just an evil thing that we did in our history and we have to make sure we indicate that. There's one story that's never been told that's always been interesting to me is the story of William Ellison. Do you know who that is? Nuh-uh. So he was a freed slave who worked for the guy who essentially invented the cotton gin. And when Eli he, Whitney. Yeah, and he passed away. Um uh, he inherited his plantation and didn't free his slaves. Mm-hmm. And in fact, ended up, the, the story of him is that he was one of the most brutal and vicious slave owners mm-hmm. and one of the primary contributors to the Confederacy. And so I think, like, my God, the complexity of that man is an interesting story. Like, the was there internal conflict every day? Was he vicious? Was there a reason why he had absolutely no connection to his people yeah. and was running? Was he just a pure capitalist in his mind of this is the industry, this is how it works? But to me, it starts the conversation that, wow— Maybe those times were more complex than we understand. Of course they were. And so I think that would be a very interesting story to tell. No one, no one's walking that script into a, into a room like, I want to make a movie about the black slave owner from the, you know, and people would be like, no way. Yeah. No, yeah. That, gets, that gets less and less likely all the time when people start connecting. But it's because we want that narrative to stay the same. We want the narrative to be, it's a white people are evil story. Well, also because- Social media, I fucking hate that phrase, but it unfortunately does matter. Um, it, 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 it's just turned into digital pitchforks. Mm-hmm. And when you, Hollywood doesn't even need to be spineless. In my very limited interaction with ho- real Hollywood people, I think that they are all more interested in telling at least slightly more nuanced, slightly more interesting stories than what actually makes it on the screen. But when you live... Well, it's it's a business, though, too. And when you live in a world where thousands of people will boycott... Kinkos because Kinkos printed use, printed the scripts that they used to yeah. make this movie that somebody sure. finds objectionable. Offensive, yeah. Well, then you're going to get to a place where, and those are these are real things. Boycotts boycotts matter. Take any corporation in the world and give them a a twenty five percent hit for one quarter. They're going to fucking feel that. Yeah. And everybody in that corporation answers to somebody, and they ultimately answer to stock to the stock market. Who would give a fuck about why Papa John's is down or whatever is down? And so I, I barely even It's a blame, great example, the Papa John's one. I barely even blame Hollywood. And you're in this damned if you do, damned if you don't. The NRA shit is, is like once the pitchforks have decided that you are the one in the crosshairs because, heaven forbid, we take a, a bird's eye view of the thing. No, Dick's Sporting Goods is... I don't know how this happened. It's a variety of of, of um, happenstance. Dick Sporting Goods, you're the one, and whatever you do, you are going to be boycotted on one side or the other. You're going to be a pariah to one side or the other. It's an unwinnable situation. Do you know what my theory about Dick's was? What's that? Completely opportunistic. Yeah, that's entirely likely as well. I think because I think when you look at it, I think Dick said, "Listen, what percentage of our total sales is guns?" Mm-hmm. Probably not that much. Yes. What do we gain if we take a hardline stance against gun ownership and gun sales? And what do we lose? Yeah. And I think it's just, I think the American public needs to wake up to things like that and say, listen, if guns were really that big of a part of their business, they would have never taken that stance. Oh, yeah. I I think the reality is guns were a very small part of their business, and they said the optics and the press will get from being the first out of the gate to say we're not going to sell guns anymore 
way better for our business than continuing to sell guns. Well, that's what that's what inevitably happens. Corporations, hello, could give a fuck about ethics and, yes. and shit like that. Yes. And there are probably many people th- from the top to the bottom ranks of dicks who have strong opinions on both sides. So a corporation doesn't have a brain. A corporation is just a collection of people, but that's what I'm saying. They basically find themselves in a situation where, oh, fuck, there's... 10,000 chain retailers selling guns in America, but for some fucking reason, I don't know how this narrative happened, America cares what dicks thinks, so now let's just do the math. We have to take a side. Not taking a side makes both sides angry. Sure. So that's that's not an option. So you can't now let's be just neutral. Fi- yeah. So now let's just figure out which one loses us less sales or potentially even creates more sales and some that's, growth. And that's absolutely all that is. So uh, and studios are the same way, of course. But I think I think people need to understand that inclusion is just the product flavor of the week. You know, this whole message from the Oscars and the Globes and everything else of like we're fighting to make Hollywood more inclusive. Um, and I think I tweeted on the night of the Oscars of like, when did the Me Too movement start being about female directors and not about victims of sexual assault? I thought it was very telling that Terry Crews was not invited to be a presenter at the Oscars and Anthony Rapp was not invited to be a presenter at the Oscars. And there has been no movement on protecting children against sexual predators in Hollywood. That whole thing of the Me Too movement has been swept under the rug, and now it's turned into this, we need more female-driven films. And it's like, well, that's not, that's like sort of saying, like, instead of putting out a fire, we're going to grow more trees. And it's like, well, that's, eventually the fire is still going to overcome all the new trees. It's very depressing how once the mob gets moving it almost never actually lands on the meaningful, salient point right. and pursues it in an intelligent way that's likely to, even even when they start off with the right idea and the best intentions. I see billboards all the time where, you know, where we live in Southern California where people, um, they, they stick these things in their front yard and it's like, uh, in this house, everyone is equal. And I'm like, yeah, cool. And they're like, and um, all colors are the same and i'm like yeah dude great and then they're like no one is illegal and i'm like well no actually there's some people who are in the country illegally Illegally. yeah we can't ignore that entirely yeah let's figure out a sensible compassionate way of dealing with that let's not be assholes but no 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 nobody ever said a human being was illegal they just if i start living in germany and i have not cleared that with the german government yeah. I am living there illegally. illegally I'm not yeah. an illegal human being. I'm an illegal citizen. Sure. You know? Yeah, and that, and I think that's one of the things. Like, I, I, I'm a guy, I'm, I'm definitely straight down the middle libertarian when it comes to my political views. But that's a trope that I love from the right where they say, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. But it's very true. Like, that's a perfect example of, mm-hmm. you know, just because you feel a certain way and you feel that, you know, people should have the right to live on this piece of land that doesn't take away from the fact that there is a process. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk to people of color who have immigrated here uh, legally and gone through that process and worked very hard and learned a difficult language. I didn't even realize I've been with the same girl for six years. I didn't even realize English was her second language until about a year ago. Well, you guys should talk she, more. She learned. Well, <laughs> no, but it's because she they don't speak Farsi in her home. Her mother does, but uh-huh. the kids don't. And I was like, uh, did you learn? I don't even know how we got on the subject, but I go, did you learn English and Farsi at the same time? She goes, no, I learned Farsi first and then English. And I was like, wow, I didn't even realize that. And so, um, you know, because the reason I thought this because she has no accent. Her sisters have no accent. Her mother has a very thick accent. 
And so my presumption was that she learned English first. And her Farsi sounds like a white girl trying to speak Farsi. So right. it's really just based on it's really just based on how she sounds. I never thought to ask. Um, but a perfect example of like where the assumption doesn't line up with reality. We got to go, Josh Denny. Your podcast is the implications of Josh Denny, and you are at Josh Denny on uh, all meaningful social media. Yes. Thank you, buddy. 